Pretty Defeat Horrors presents Lot number 249 by Arthur Colin Doyle of the dealings of Edward Bellingham and William Monkhouse Lee and of course the great terror of Ackerman's It may be that no episode of Final Judgment will ever be delivered. It is true we must have the full and clear narrative of Smith himself such collaboration as could look from Stiles, Thomas Stiles, the servant, from the Reverend Plumtree Peterson, fellow of olds, and from other people as chance to gain some passing glance at this, that incident, a singular chain of events, yet in the main a story must rest upon Smith alone. Most will think that it is more likely that the one brain have utterly sane, must more some subtle whoop in its texture, some strange flaw in its workings, than a path of nature that had been overstepped in open day, as also famed a centre of learning and light at the University of Oxford. Yet when we think how narrow, how devious this path of nature is, how dimly we can trace it, all our lamps of science, and how long from the darkness which grinds its round great a terrible possibilities loom over shadowly to upwards. It is bold and confident man will put a limit to the strange by paths into which human spirit may wander. In a certain wing of what we call Old College in Oxford, there is a corner turret of exceeding great age, a heavy arch which spans the open door is bent backwards in the centre upon the weight of its years a grey and the grey lichen blotched blocks of stone are bound and knitted together with withes and strands of ivy, as though the old mother has sent herself to brace them up against the wind and weather. From the door a stone stair curves upwards, sparingly passing two landings and terminating in the third one. It all steps, all shapeless and hollowed, by the tread of so many generations of the seekers after knowledge, life has flowed like water down the wind- this winding stair. A water like has left these smooth, warm grooves behind it. From the long grown pantatic scholars of pangent days down to the youngest bloods of latter age, how full and strong have been the tide of young English life! There is now, left now, of all those hopes, those starvings, those fiery energies, save here and there in some old world churchyard, a few scratches upon a stone, and perchance a handful of dust in mouldering coffin. Yet there, what a silent stare, the grey old world, with bend and satire, with many other heretic device still to be read upon its surface they grotesque shadows fall back for the days that had passed in the month of may the year of eighteen eighty four three young men occupied the sets of rooms which opened to the separate landings of the old stair each set consisted simply of sitting room or a bedroom while the other two corresponding rooms upon the ground floor were used 
one as coal cellar, the other as a living room of the servant of Gipi, Thomas Stiles, whose duty it was to wait upon these three men above him. To the right and left was a line of lecture rooms and of the offices, so that the dwellers in the old turret enjoyed a certain seclusion of which made the chambers popular among the more studious undergraduates adverts. Such were the three occupied them now. Abercombe Smith above, Edward Bellingham beneath him, and William Monkhouse Lee upon the lowest story. It was ten o'clock on the bright spring night that Abercombe Smith lay back in his armchair, his feet upon the fender, his bry root pipe between his lips, in a familiar chair, similar chair, Elikia ease, there lounged on the other side of the fireplace, his old school friend, Joe Bow Hasty. Both men were in flannels. They had spent the evening upon the river, but apart from their dress, no one could look at their hard-cut, altered, alert faces without seeing them, that they were open-air men, whose minds and tastes turned naturally to all that was manly or robust. Hasty indeed was stroke of, of his college boat, and Smith was even better or but a, a coming examination had already cast its shadow over him and held him to his work, save for the few hours a week which health demanded. A litter of medical books upon the table, with scattered bones, models and autotomic plates, Pointed to his extent, as well as the nature of his studies, while a couple of single sticks and a set of boxing clubs about the mantelpiece hinted at the means or by which, Hastie's, with Hasty's help, he might take his exercise in the most compressed and least distant way form. They knew each other very well, so well they could sit now in assuming silence which the very highest development of companionship which is the highest development of companionship have some whiskey said Abercombe Smith at last between two clubbers scotch in a jug and Irish in the bottle no thanks I am in for, for the skulls I don't liquor when I'm training how about you I'm reading hard I think it's best to leave it alone. Hasey nodded, and he relapsed into content silence. By the way, Smith, asked Hasey. Presently, when they made the acquaintance of either the fellows on their stairs yet? Just a nod when we pass, nothing more. Hmm, I should be inclined to let it stand at them. I know something of them both. Not much, but as much as I want. I didn't think I'd take them to my bosom, if I were you, but there isn't much amiss with Monkley Lee. How's he? Meaning a thin one? Precisely. He's a gentleman, little fellow. Many little fellow. I don't think there is very any vice in him, but then you can't know him without knowing Bellingham. Meaning the fat one? Yes, the fat one. He's a man whom I, for one, would rather not know. Akakun Smith, Coon Smith, Kumi Smith, raised his eyebrows and glanced across them at his companion. What's up, then? he asked. 
drink, cars, cad. You, you used to be, not to be, Sagittarius. Ah, you really don't know the man, or you wouldn't ask. There's something damnable about the voice. Him. Something reptilian. My gorge always rises at him. I should put him down as a man with secret vices, an evil liver. He's not a fool, though. They say he's one of the best men in line when they have had him ever they ever had in college. Medicine or classics? Eastern languages is a demon at them. Tillingworth led him somewhere above the second cataract last year, last long. He told me that he had plattered prattled to the arrows if he had been born and nursed and weaned among them. He taught Koravik to the Korats and Hebrew to the Jews, Arabic to the Belladones, and they were all ready to kiss him, the hem of his freck flock coat. There were other old hermit Johnnies up those parts who sat on rocks and scowled and spit at the occasional stranger. Well, when he saw Chuck Bennington, before he even said five words, he just lay there on their bellies and wiggled. Tingleworth said he never saw anything like it. Bellingham seemed to take it in his, at, as his right, too, and strutted about among them and talked down to them like a Dutch uncle. Pretty good for an undergrad at Olds, wasn't it? What do you, <coughs> what do you say? You don't know Lee without knowing Bellingham? Because of Bellingham is a case to his sister Evelyn. Such a bright little girl. Smith, I know. He whole family well. It's disgusting to see that brute with her, a toad and a dove. That's what they always remind me of. Abercumi Smith grinned and knocked his ashes out against the side of the grate. You know, you show every card in your, your hand, old chap. Said he, what a prejudiced, green-eyed, wit, evil-looking old man it is. You are really nothing against the... You have really nothing against the fellow except that. Well, I know ever since she's long as that cherry woodpipe, I don't like to see her taking risk. And it is a, it is a risk. He looks beastly. He has a beastly temper, a venomous temper. You remember his row with Long Norton? No, you always forget that I am a freshman. Ah, it was last winter, of course. Well, you know the towpath along by the river. There are several fellows coming along it, pulling them in front. When they came to an old market, woman coming the other way, it had been raining. You know what these fields are like when it's rained, a path ran between the river. And the great puddle was nearly at the board. Well, what does the swine do but keep the path? I pushed the old girl to the mud, into the mud, where she in her markings came to terrible grief. It was a black god thing to do. A long Norton, whose gentlefellow has overstepped, told him that he thought of it. He thought of it. One word led to another. It ended in Norton laying his stick across the fellow's shoulders. There was a juice of fuss about it. It's a treat to see the way which Wellingham looks at Norton when he meet now by Joe Smith. It's nearly eleven o'clock. Now hurry, light your pipe again. 
Not I. I suppose to be in training. Ah, here I have been sitting Scotsman that I ought to have been safely tucked up. I borrow your skull, if you can share it. Williams had mine for a month. I take the little bones to your ears, too, if you're sure you wouldn't need, need them. Thanks very much. Never mind a bag. I carry them very well under my arm. Good night, my son. I take my tip to your as to your neighbour. When Hassey, bearing these atomical plunder, had clattered off down the winding stair, Abercrombie Smith hurled his pipe into the waste paper basket and, drawing his chair nearer to the lamp, plunged into a formidable green-covered volume adorned with great coloured mats, that strange eternal kingdom in which we hapless and hope, hap, helpless monarchs. We are the helpless and hopeless mammoths. Through a freshman of Oxford, the student was not in, so in medicine, for he had worked for many years at Glasgow, at Berlin, and this coming examination would place him finally as a member of his profession, with his this firm mouth, broad forehead, and clear-cut, somewhat hard-featured face. He was a man who, if he had no brilliant talent, was yet so dogged, so patient, so strong, he might, in the end, over-top a more showy genius, a man who hold his own among Scotsmen and new North Germans. is not a man to be easy set back. Smith had left the name in Glasgow and at Berlin. He was bent now upon doing as much as Oxford, if hard work and devotion could accomplish it. He had sat reading for about an hour, and the hands of the noisy carriage clock upon the side table were rapidly closing together upon the twelve, when a sudden noise sound fell upon the student's ear, a sharp, rather shrill sound, like the hissing intake of a man's breath, but grasped under some strong emotion. Smith lay down his book and started his ear to listen. There was no more to the side above him, so that interpretation came na- certainly upon the neighbour beneath. The same neighbour whom Hassel had given so unsavoury account, Smith knew him only as a flabby pale-faced man, a silent and studious habits, a man whose lamp threw a golden bar from the old turret, even after he extinguished his own. His, this community's lateness for what had formed a sudden silent bond between them. It's moving to Smith when the hours stole on towards dawning to feel that he was, there were other was another so close on set as small a value upon his sleep as he did. Even now, as his faults turned towards him, Smith's feelings were kindly. As he was a good fellow, but he was rough, strong-fibred, with no imagination of sympathy. He could not tolerate departures from which what he looked upon as a modern types of manliness. If a man could not be measured by a public school standard, he was beyond the pale with Hassel. Hassel. Like so many who are themselves robust, he is apt to confuse the constitution with the character to strive to want the principle and really a want of circulation. Of circulation. Smith, with his strong mind, proved, knew his friend's habit and made allowance for it. 
as his thoughts turned towards the man beneath him. There was no return to the singular sound as Smith was about to turn his work once more, when suddenly there broke out the silence of the night on all's cry, a positive scream, a call of a man who had moved and shaken beyond all control. Smith sprang out of his chair and dropped his book. Here's a man of fairly vile and fiber. There was something in this sudden, uncontrollable shriek of horror which chilled his bone, blood, and pring, pricked his skin. Coming in such a place at such an hour, it brought a thousand fantastic possibilities into his head. Should he rush down, or was it better to wait? He had all the national hatred of making a scene. He knew so little of this neighbour. He would not lightly intrude upon his affairs. For the moment he stood in doubt, and even as he balanced a matter, there was a quick rattle of footsteps upon the stairs. A young monkly house lee, half-dressed as white as ashes, burst into his room. Come down, he gasped. Bellingham is, Bellingham's ill. Hacob Comey Smith followed him closely down the stairs into the sitting room, which was beneath his own. The intent was he, was he upon the matter in hand. He did not take an amused glance around as he crossed the threshold. It, it was such a chamber he had never seen before, a museum rather than a study. Walls and ceilings were thickly covered with strange, with thousand strange relics from Egypt and the East. Tall angular figures bearing burdens of weapons stalked in uncouth frieze around their apartments. Above were full-headed, stalk-headed, cat-headed, owl-headed statues with viper-crowned, arbor-eyed monarchs and strange beetle-like divinities. Cut out of the blue um, Egyptian lepius, Leveril, Horus, and Iris, and Oresis, peeped down from every niche and shelf, while well, across the ceiling a true son of old now, a great hanging jawed corridor, was slung in a double noose. In the centre of this singular chamber was a large square table littered with papers, bottles, and the dried leaves of some graceful palm-like plant. These varied objects had been heaped together in order to make room for a mummy case, which had been conveyed upon the wall. It was evident that the gap there, and laid across the front of the table, the mummy itself, a horrid black and withering thing, like a charred hand on a gold brush, was lying half out of the case, with its claw-like hand, a bony forearm, resting upon the table. Popped up against the sarcophagus was an old yellow scroll of papyrus. In front of it, a wooden armchair sat the owner of the room, his head thrown back, his wildly-eyed, wide-opened eyes directed a horrified state to a crocodile above him, and his blue thickets puffing loudly with every expiration. My God, he's dying, cried Malthouse Lee, distractedly. He was a slim, handsome young fellow, olive-skinned, a dark head, a Spanish rather than Egyptian type, with a Celtic intensity and a manner which contrasted with the Saxon plankton of Anacombe Smith. Only a faint, I think, said the medical student. Just give me a hand with him. Just take his feet now on to the sofa. Can you kick all those wooden little devils off? What a litter it is. 
Now we will be all right. If we undo his collar and give him some water. What's, what has he been up to? Up to at all? I don't know. I heard him cry. I ran out. I don't know him pretty well. I know him pretty well, you know. He's very good to you to come down. My heart is going over like a pair of cursonets, says Smith, laying his hand on the beast. Breast of the unconscious man. He seems to be the faint, frightened all, all to pieces. Choke the water over him. What a face he has got on him. It is indeed a strange and most repellent face. Well, colours and outline were naturally unnatural. It was white, not from ordinary pallor or fear, but absolutely bloodless white, like the underside of a soul. It was very fat, but gave the impression of having at least some time been considerably fatter. His skin hung loosely, increases and folds, was shot with a mesh like wrinkles, shot st- stubbly, brown hair bristled up from his scalp, a pair of thick wrinkled ears protruding on either side. His light hair, light grey eyes were still open, the pupils dilated with walls projecting its fixed and horrid stare. It seemed to Smith, he looked down upon him. He had never seen nature's danger signals. Lying so plainly upon the man's countenance, his faults turned more seriously to the warming which Hessel had given him an hour before. What the deuce can have frightened him so? He warned, asked. It's the mummy. A mummy? How, then? I don't know. It's beastly and morbid. I wish he would drop it. It's the second fright he's given me. It's the, la- it's the same last winter. I found him just like this, the horrid thing in the front of him. What does he want the mummy with the mummy, then? Oh, he's a prank, you know. It is his hobby. He knows more about these things than any man in England. I wish he wouldn't. Ah, oh, he's beginning to come, too. A faint tinge of colour had begun to steal back into Bellingham's ghastly cheeks. His eyelids shivered. Like a cell after a calm, he grasped and ungrasped his hands, drew a long, thin breath between his teeth, and suddenly jerking up his head, threw a glance of recognition around him. As his eyes fell upon the mummy, he sprang off the sofa, seized the paper of Palavales, thrust it into a drawer, turned the key, and then staggered back to the sofa. What's up? he asked. What do you chaps want? You've been shrieking out and making no end of a fuss, said Monkhouse Lee. If I, your, your neighbour here, from above, hadn't come down, I'm sure I don't know what I should have done with you. Aye, it's Abbotscombe Smith, said Bellingham, glancing upon him. How good of you to come in. What a fool I am. Oh, my God. What am I... What a fool I am! He shrunk his head to his hands and burst into peal of the peal of hysterical laughter. Look here, drop it! cried Smith, shaking him roughly by his shoulder. Your nerves are all a jangle. You must drop these midnight games of mummies, or you'll be going off your trump. Chump. You're you're all on the wires now. I wonder, said Bellingham, whether we. You would be as cool as I, if you had seen what then? Oh, nothing, I meant. I wonder if you could sit up night with a mummy without trying 
drying your nerves. I don't think you're quite right. I dare say you've been talking, talking out to myself too much lately. But I am all right now. Please don't go alone. Just wait for a minute till I am quite myself. The room is very close, remarked Lee, blowing open the window and letting the cool night in, the no, in the cool night air. It's a domestic resin, said the Bellingham. He lifted up one of the dry pale mint leaves from the table and frizzed over the chimney of the lamp. He broke away the heavy smoke wreaths. A pungent, biting odour filled the chamber. Filled the chamber. It's an ancient, it's a sacred plant. A plant of the priests, he remarked. Do you know anything of the Eastern languages? Smith? Nothing at all, not a word. The answer seemed to lift the one weight from the Egyptian's mind. By the way, he continued, how long was it the time that you ran down until I came to my senses? Not long, some four to five minutes. I thought it would not be very long, could not be very long, said he, drawing a long breath. But with, with a strange thing unconscious, it is. There is no measurement to it. I cannot tell from my own sensations if I was, it were seconds or weeks. Now that the gentleman on the table has packed up the days of the length of dynasty, some forty centuries ago, yet if he could find his tongue, he would tell us that this lapse of time had been but a closing of the eyes and reopening of them. He seemed me fine, rummy, Smith. Smith stepped over to the table, looked down with a professional eye as a black and twisted form in front of him. The features, though horribly discoloured, were perfect. The two little nut-like eyes were still lurked in the depths. The black-coloured sockets of that skin were drawn tightly from bone to bone, and tangled wrap of black coarse hair fell upon the ear over the ears. Two thin teeth, like rows of rat, overlaid a shriveled lower lip. His crouching position, with bent gym joints and craned head, was there was a suggestion of energy, but a horrible thing, which made same scald rise the gaunt lips their parts from night coverings were exposed in a sunken <coughs> huge abdomen abdomen with a long slit where the embalmer had left his mark but the lower limbs were wrapped up round with coarse yellow bandages a number of little cove-like pieces of myth myra and of cassia were sprinkled over the body and lay scattered on the inside of the case. I don't know his name, said Dirk Bunningham, passing his hand over the shriveled head. You see the other sarcophagus, the inscription is missing. Lot 249 is all the title we ha- he has now. You see it printed on his case. That was the number of the orchard with which I picked him up. He must have been a very pretty sort of fellow in his day, remarked Abercrombie Smith. He had been a giant. His mummy is six feet seven in length. That would be giant over there, for they would never have very robust bones. Peel those giant knotted bones too. He would be a nasty fellow to tackle. Perhaps those very hands helped to build stones into the pyramids, suggested Montrose Lee, looking down through his disgust in his eyes at the crooked, uncleaned talons.
no fear this fellow was a pi- pickle, didn't he? No John. And looked after the, in the most approved style. He did not serve Holdsman. In that fashion, sort of boatmen were enough for them. Being circulated that this sort of thing cost about seven hundred and thirty pounds in it in your money. Our friend was a noble at least. What do you make of that small inscription near his feet, Smith? I told you I know no lace and tongue. Oh, so you did. He's a name the Umbama, I take it. A very conscious worker. He must have been. I wonder how many modern works to survive four thousand years. He kept on speaking lightly and rapidly. Maybe he's evident to Abercoon Smith. He was still perpetuating per- with pulsating with fear. His hand shook, his lower lip trembled, and looked there where he would. His eye came upon sliding around to the gruesome companion. Though all his fear, however, there was a suspicion of triumph in his tone and manner. His eyes shone, his footstep, as he placed the room. He was brisk and jaunty. He gave the impression of a man who had gone through an ordeal, a marks of which he still bears upon him, of which was helped him to his end. You're not going yet, he cried as Smith rose on the sofa. All the prospect of solitude and fears seemed to growl upon him, and he stretched out a hand to detain him. Yes, I must go. I have work to do. You are right now. I think that your your nervousism, you should take up the less morbid, some less morbid study. Oh, I'm not nervous as a rule. I have had right mummies before. You fainted at least one last time, Mr. Monkley, Adley. Oh, yes, I did. Well, I must have a nervous tonic, of course. Oh, of course, electricity. Are you going, Lee? I am. I do whatever you wish, Ned. Then come down with you. I'll, then I'll come down with you. And have a shake down on your sofa. Good night, Smith. I am so sorry to have disturbed you. You with my foolishness. They, hand, they shook hands as the medical students stumbled. Up the spiral and regular stair, he heard a key turn in the door, and steps of his very new his two new acquaintances and descended to the lower floor. In this strange way began the acquaintance between Edward Bellingham and Avacoom Smith, an acquaintance of which latter, at least, had no desire to push further. Bellingham, however, appeared to take a fancy to this rough spoken neighbour, and made his advances in such a way he could hardly be repulsed without absolute brutality. Twice he called to thank Smith for his assistance, and many times afterwards he looked in with books, papers, and such other celebrities as two bachelor neighbours can offer each other. He was, as Smith found him, a man of wide reading, with Catholic tastes and extraordinary memory. His manner, too, was so pleasing and suave, and one came after time to overlook his repellent appearance. For a jaded and worried, worried man, he was no unpleasant companion, and Smith found himself, after a time, looking forward to his visits, and even returning them. Clever as he doubly was, however, the medical student seemed to detect a dash of insanity in the man. He broke out at times in a high, inflated style of talk, which contrasts with the simplicity of his life. It's a wonderful thing, he cried, to feel 
that one can command powers of good and evil, a ministering angel or demon of vengeance, again the monk held Lee, said, Lee is a good fellow or honest fellow, but without strength or ambition, he must not make a fit, he would not make a fit partner for a man with great, with great enterprise, he would not make a fit partner for, for me. As such hints in the windows, solid Smith puffily solemnly at his pipe, would easily raise his eyebrows, simply raise his eyebrows and shake his head with little co- interventions of medical wisdom as early hours and fresher air. One habit of Bellingham had developed of late, which the Smith knew to be frequent herald of a weakening mind. He appeared to have ever talking to himself at eight hours of the night there must be no vi- make, could be no visitor with him Smith could still hear his voice beneath him a low muffled monologue sunk again almost a whisper and yet very audible in the silence the solitary blabbing bubbling annoyed and distracted the student so he, sp- he spoke more than once to his neighbour about it but Liam have flushed up the, at the charge and now he's curtly he uttered a sound. Indeed, he more. He showed more annoyance of the matter than the occasion seemed to be de- demand. Had Adam Smith had any doubt of his own ears, he would not far, not far to find collaboration. Tim Star, Tom Stiles, a little wrinkled old manservant, who attended to the wants of lodgers in the torrent of a long time, than any man, man's memory could carry him was surely, surely put to it over the same manner. If you please, sir, he said, as he tidied down the top chamber one morning, do you think Mr. Bellingham is all right, sir? All right, Stiles? Yes, sir. Right in the head, sir. How why should that be, then? Well, I don't know, sir. His habits have changed a little. Late, he's not the same man he used to be. Though I might get free to say, you never quite wondered my gentleman like, Miss Hasey or yourself, sir. I looked, he took to talking to himself, something awful. I wonder if you, if I uh, wouldn't disturb you. I don't know what to make of him, sir. I don't know what business it is of yours, Styles. Well, it take, um, takes an interest, Mr. Smith. You may be forward me, but I cannot help it. I feel sometimes as if I were mother or father. To you, my young gentleman, it falls to me and me when things go wrong, and relations come. But Mr. Bellingham, sir, I don't know what it is that walks about his room. Something when when he's out, when the, the door's locked on the outside. Hmm. We're talking nonsense, Styles. Maybe so, sir. I heard it once with my own ears. Rubbish, Styles. Very good, sir. You ring the bell if you want me. However, Coosmith gave such a heed to gossip of the old man suffered, but a small incident occurred a few days later which left an unpleasant effect upon his mind and brought the words of Stiles falsely up to his, me- to his memory. Bellingham had come to see him late one night and was entertaining him with an interesting account the rock tombs of Beni Hassan in Upper Egypt. When Smith was hearing was remarkably accurate, distinctly heard the sound of a door opening on the land- landing below. There's another fellow gone in or out of your room, 
he remarked. Bellingham sprang up and stood helpless for a moment. The expression of man was half incredulous and half afraid. I am sure I surely locked it. I am almost positive that I locked it. He stammered. No one could have opened it. Why, I heard someone coming up the stairs right now. I hear there's someone coming up the stairs now, said Smith. Bellingham rushed out through the door, slammed it roughly behind him, and hurried down the stairs. About halfway down, Smith heard him stop, though thought he caught the sound of whispering. A moment later, the door beneath him shut a door clearly. He creaked in the lock, and Bellingham, with beads of furniture upon his pale face, ascended the stairs. Once more, we entered the room. It's all right, he said, throwing himself down in a chair. It was a fool of a dog. He pushed the door open. I don't know how I came to forget to lock it. I don't, 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 I don't know that you kept the dog, says Smith, looking very thoughtfully, disturbed the face of his companion. Yes, I haven't had him long. I must get rid of him. He's a great nuisance. You must be, if you find it so hard to shut him up. I should have thought that shutting the door would have been enough without locking it. I want to prevent the old stoles from letting him out. He's of some value, you know, and would be awkward to lose him. I'm a bit, a bit of a dog fancier myself, said Smith, still gazing hard at his companion with a, from the corner of his eyes. Perhaps you let, let him have a, me have a look at it. Certainly, but I'm afraid I cannot be tonight. I have an appointment. It is the clock. Is the clock right? I am a quarter of an hour late already. You excuse me, I'm sure. <coughs> he picked up his cap and hurled, hurried from the door. In spite of his appointment, Smith heard him. He entered his own chamber and locked the door upon the inside. The interview left a disagreeable impression upon the medical student's mind. But him lied to him. A lie so clumsy they looked as if he had the desperate reasons for concealing the truth. Smith knew that his labour had no dog. He knew also the step that he heard upon the stairs was not a separate animal. For, but if it were not, what could it be? The old style statement about something which used to pace the room at times when the owner was absent. Could it be a woman? Smith rather inclined to the view. If you could, if it meant dreadful disgrace, expulsion to Bellingham, if if it were discovered by authorities, so that his anxiety and forces might be accounted for, and yet it was inconceivable that an undergraduate would keep a woman in his room without being instantly detected. Be the examination what it what it might, there was something ugly about it, and Smith determined his he turned to his book and discouraged all further attempts in embassy on the part of his soft-spoken and ill-favoured neighbour. But his work was destined to inter- interruption that night. He hardly called up the broken treads when a firm, heavy footfall came three steps at him from below and hasty in a blazer and fennels burst into the room. Still at it, he said, plumbing down his wooden air and chair. What a chap you are to go to behave leave an earthquake might come and not Oxford in a crooked hat into on into a crooked hat. You'd sit perfectly placid with your books among the reins, 
Not that I must bore you long. You look, I won't bore you long. The three whiffs of bracky and I'm, I'm off. Here's, what's the news then? asked Smith, cramming a plug of bird's eye into Briar with his forefinger. Nothing much, nothing very much, Wilson. May 70 the freshman again, again, um, again, the 11. They say they were very, they played him instead of Bunnicum or Bunnicum. He's cleaning off colour. He used to be able to bowl a little. There's nothing but half volleys and hope, long hopes now. Medium right, suggested Smith with intense gravity, which comes upon a varsity man which speaks of athletics. Inclining it too fast, but the work of one leg comes with one leg about three inches or so. It used to be nasty at getting on a wicket, wet wicket. Oh, by the way, have you heard about Long Newton? What's that? He's been attacked, attacked? Yes. Just when he was turning off out of high street, within a hundred yards of the gate, always. But who? We are the of rabbits, if as you said. What would be more graphical? Lord's face is not human. Indeed, the scratches his throat. I should have been trying to agree with him. What, then? Have we, have, here, we come down to spooks. Have we come down to spooks? Adakum Smith, party's son, contempt. Well, no, I don't think that is quite the idea. After I'm inclined to think that any showman has lost a great ape lately, a brute in these parts, a jury might find a true bell against it. Norton passes at night, very night, you know. Well, about the same hour, there's a tree that hangs low over the path, a big elm from Rainey's garden. Norton thinks that the time dropped on him out of the tree, anyhow, was nearly strangled by two arms, which, he says, were strong as thin as steel bands. He saw nothing, only his beastly arms had tightened and tightened on him. He yelled his head, uh, yelled his head nearly off. A couple of chaps came running. The thing went over the wall like a cat. He never got a fair sight of it at the whole time. He gave me even Norton a shake-up. I can tell you, I can tell him, it was been a good as a change at the seaside for him. A grandmother? Most likely, says Smith. <clears throat> Very possibly, Norton say, says not. But he think doesn't but not think that won't mind what he says. The Gomorrah with long nails and was very pretty, very pretty. Smart at swinging himself over walls. By the way, your beautiful neighbour would be pleased if he heard about it. He's a grudge against Norton. He's not a man that I know of him to forget his old little debts. But hello, old chap, what have you got in your noodle? Nothing, Smith answered curtly. He had started in his chair and took look and flashed over his face. It comes upon a man stuck suddenly by some unpleasant idea. You looked as if something had said to take you or more. By the way, you have made the acquaintance of Master B, since I looked at him at last. Have you not? Young Munthouse Lee told me something of that effect. Yes, I know him slightly. He had been here once or twice. Well, you're big enough and ugly enough to take care of yourself. He's not what I call exactly healthy, sort of Johnny, though. No doubt he's very clever and all that, but as you soon find out for yourself, Lee, he's all right. He's a very decent little fellow. Well, not so long. Oh, 
old fellow. I row run-ins for the Vice-Chancellor, Pot and Wednesday week. So mind you come down, in case I don't see you before. Bobin Smith lay down his pipe and told solidly into his books once more. But with all the wheel in the world, he found it very hard to keep his mind upon his work. He slipped down to the board, very brood upon the man beneath him, upon the little mystery which hung round his chambers, when the, these thoughts turned to the single attack which Hussey had spoken, and to the grudge which Bellingham had said owed the object to it. The two ideas would persist in rising t- together in his mind, as though there was some very some close and intimate connection between them, and yet the suspicion was so dim and vague it could not be put into words. Confound that chap, cried Smith, as he shielded shade his book on poverty across the room. He has spoiled my night's reading, and that reason enough. If there were no other, why should I steer clear of him in the future? For ten days a medical student confined himself so closely to his studies, he never saw nor heard anything or either of the men beneath him. As the hours when Benningham had been accustomed to visit him, he took care to sport his oak. And though he once heard of knocking on his outer door, he resolutely refused to answer. One afternoon, however, he was descending the stairs when just when he was passing it, Benningham's door flew open, and young man Lee came out his eyes sparkling, a dark flush of anger upon his olive cheeks. Close to his heels followed Bellingham, his fat and healthy face, all quivering with malignant passion. You fool, he hissed, you'll be sorry. Very lightly, cried the other. Mind that I say I'm off. Well, I won't, I won't hear of it. You promised, anyhow. Oh, I keep that. I won't speak, but I rather like, but I rather... Little Evie was in her grave, for once for all, it's off. So you do what I say, we don't want to see you again. So much Smith could avoid hearing. He had hurried on, for he had no wish to be involved in their dispute. He had been a serious breach between them. It was clear enough, and Lee was about to cause the arrangement of his sister to be broken off. Lee Smith thought of Hassel's comparison to the toad, the dove, and was glad to think that the matter was an end. But in his face, then, when he was in passion, was not pleasant to look upon. He was not a man to whom an innocent girl could be trusted for life. And he walked, Smith wondered languidly what could have caused the quarrel, and the promise might be which Bunningham, being so anxious and lovely as Lee, should keep. It was the day of the scully match between Hussey and Mullins. A stream of men were making their way down to the banks of the iris. A May sun was shining brightly, and the path was barred from the black shadows of the tall elm trees. On either side, the grey colleagues lay back from the road, the hoary old mothers of mines, looking out from their high, muddled windows at the tide of young life which swept so merrily past them. Black-clad tutors, prim officials, pale radiant men, brown-faced, straw-hatted young athletes in white sweaters, on many-coloured blazers, all were hurrying towards the blue, winding river, 
which carries through the Oxford Meadows. A cocoon smith was in intuition was with the intuition of an old oarsman, chose his position at the point where he knew that a struggle, if there were a struggle, would come. Far off he heard the hum which surmounts the start, and a gathering roar approached the thunder of when he feet and the shouts of men in the boats beneath him. A spray of half-fled, deep-breathing runners shot past him, and craning over their shoulders, he saw hasty, pulling in a steady in thirty-six, while his opponent moved a jerky forty, with a good boat's length behind him. Smith gave a cheer for his friend, and pulling out his watch was starting off again. For his chambers, he felt a touch upon his shoulder, and found it a young monk asleep was beside him. I saw you there, he said, in a timid, decapitating way. I wanted to speak to you. If I could spare, you could spare half an hour. This cottage is mine. I share it with Hunnigan, of the Hamilton and Kings. Come in and have a cup of tea. I'll be back presently, says Smith. I am hard on the Rhine at present. I, I, but I come in a few minutes. With pleasure, I wouldn't have come out. Only Hasty is a friend of mine. So he is a mine. Hasn't he been beautiful style? Mullins wasn't in it. But come into the cottage. It's a little den of place. Very pleasant to work in during like the summer months. It was a small square white building with green doors and shutters. A rich thick bell trellis work porch standing back some fifty yards from the fifth river's bank. Inside the main was roughly fitted up, fitted as a study, deal table, unpainted shelves of books, a fair few chap autographs upon cheap autographs upon the wall, a kettle sang over a spit oven stove, and there were tea things upon a tray on the table. Try that chair and have a cigarette, said Lee. Let me pour you out a cup of tea. It's so good for you to come in. For I know that your time is a good deal taken up. I wanted to say to you that if I were you, I should change my rooms at once. Huh? Miss started staring. With a lighted match in one hand, his unlitted cigarette in the other. Yes, I must seem very extraordinary. And worse of it, I cannot give you any give my reasons. For I am under a solemn promise. A very solemn promise. But I may so far as say I don't think Bellingham is a very safe man to live near. I tend to camp out here as much as I can for a time. Not safe? What do you mean? Ah, that's what I mustn't say. But do take my advice and move your rooms. We are grand now today. You must have heard us. For you came down the stairs. I saw that you've fallen out. He's a horrible smith for the only word for him. I have no doubts about him ever since the night when he fainted. Do you remember? When you came down, I texted to him today, and he s- s- told me many things that made my hair raise. I wanted me to stand in, in for him. I'm not straight-laced, but I am a clergyman's son. You know, I think, that some things are quite beyond the pale. I only thank God I found him out before I was too late, for he was uh, married into my family. This is very all, all very fine, said Oakham Smith, curtly, but neither... Even you're saying a great deal too much, or a great deal too little. I am giving you a warning, you a warning. If there is a real reason for warning, no promise you can blind you. 
for I see a racist about to blow, rascal about to blow a piece. Place up with a diamond, mate. No pledge will stand in my way for preventing him. Oh, I cannot prevent him. I can do nothing but warn you. Without saying what you want, warn me against, against Bellingham. But that is childish. Why should I fear him, or any man? I cannot tell you. I can only treat to you to change your rooms. You are in danger where you are. I don't, didn't even say that Bellingham could wish to injure you. But it might happen, for he's dangerous neighbour just now. Perhaps I know, I know more than you think, said Smith, looking keenly at the young man's boyish his face. Suppose I tell you that someone else shares Bellingham's room. Uncle here sprang from his chair, uncomfortable with excitement. You know, then, he gasped, a woman. Lee dropped back again with a groan. My lips are sealed, he said. I must not speak. Well, anyhow, says Smith, arising, it's not likely you should allow him to be frightened out of your rooms, which suit me very nicely. It'd be a little, little too feeble for me to move out. Or my goods and Charlotte's, because, you say, believe I might have some explained way to do me injury. I think I'll take my chance and stay where I am. As you see, it is nearly five o'clock. I must ask you to excuse me. He bade the young sooner to do, in very curt words, and made his way up homeward through the night spring, sweet spring evening, feeling off half ruffled, half amused, as another strong and managing man might have been menaced by a vague and shadowy danger. He was little indulgent upon Agacoon Smith, who always allowed himself, however closely his work might press upon him, twice a week, on a Tuesday and a Friday, his available master walk over to Fellingford, a residence of Dr. Plumtree Paterson, similarly situated within a mile and a half of Oxford, piece of enclosed friend of Smith, elder brother, Francis, as he was a bachelor, fairly well to do, with a good cellar and better library. His house was a present goal for a man who was in need of risk walk. Twice a week then, the medical student would swing out there along the country roads, spend a pleasant hour. Peters, Peterson's comfortable study, discussing over a glass of old port the gossip of veracity of the latest developments of medicine or of surgery. On the day which followed his interview with Uncle Lee, Smith shut up his books. A quarter past eight, the hour when he usually started for his friend's house. As for leaving his room, however, his eyes chanced to fall upon one of the books which Bellingham had lent him. His conscience pricked him for not returning it. However repellent the man might be, he should not be treated with discourtesy. Taking the book, he walked downstairs and knocked at his neighbour's door. There was no answer, but on turning the handle, he found it was unlocked. Pleased at the thought of avoiding an interview, he stepped inside and placed a book with his card upon the table. The lamp was half down, where Smith could see the details of the room. Plain enough, it was all the same much he could seen before. The frenzy, the animal-headed guards, a banging crocodile, 
and the table littered with papers and dry leaves. The mummy's case stood up right against the wall, but the mummy itself was missing. There was no sign of any second occupant of the room. He felt he was drawn. What he had probably done, Bellingham and Justice, had he been guilty secret to preserve, he would hardly leave his door open so that the world might enter. The spiral stair was a black as pitch, and Smith was slowly making his way down. He felt the steps, when he suddenly conscious that something had passed him in the darkness. There was a faint sound, a whiff of air, a light brushing past his elbow, but so slight he could scarcely be certain of it. He stopped and listened, but the wind was rustling among the ivy. Outside he could hear nothing else. Is that you, Styles? he shouted. There was no answer. And all behind was still behind him. It must it must have been a sudden burst of air, for there were crannies and cracks in the old turret. Yet he was almost certainly sworn he heard a footfall at his very side. He emerged into the quadrangle, still turning the matter over in his head, when a man came swiftly across the smooth lawn. Is that you, Smith? Hello, I see. For God's sake, come at once. Young Lee's drowned. He's Hamilton of Kings. With news, the doctor is out. You go. You do. But come along at once. There may be life in him. Have you brandy? No, I bring some. Here, there's a flask on my table. Smith found it upstairs. Taking three at a time, seized the, the flask and was rushing down with it. When he pulled past Bellingham's room, his eyes fell upon some each, lifted gasping and staring. Upon the landing, the door which he had closed behind him was open, and right in front of him, the lamp light shining upon it, with it was the mummy's case. Three minutes ago it had been empty. He could swear to that. Now it framed a lanky body, its humble, horrible occupant, who stood grim and stark, with his black, shriveled face towards the door. A form was lifeless and inert. It seemed to Smith, as he gazed there, still lingered a lurid spark of her identity, some faint sign of consciousness, in her little eyes that lurked in depths of the shadow, hollowed sockets. So astonished and shaken was he that he had forgotten his errand, and was still staring at a lean, lean, sunken figure, when the voice of his friend, Bellow, below, recalled him to himself. Come on, Smith, he shouted. It's life and death, you know. Hurry up! Not now, then, he added, as a medical student repeated. Let us do a sprint. It's very well under a mile. We shall do it in five minutes. A human life is better worth running for than a pot. Neck and neck they dashed across the darkness, and not did not pull up, or panting and spent. They reached a little cottage by the river. Young Lee, limp and little dripping, like a broken water plant, was stretched upon the sofa. The green scum of the river upon his black hair, and a fringe of white foam upon his leaden hued lips. Leaden hued lips. Beside him knelt his fellow student at Orton, endeavouring to chafe some warmth back into his limited limbs. I think there is life in him, said Smith, with his hand on his lion side. Put your watch glass to his lips. Yes, there's dreaming on it. You take one arm, has he? Now work as I do, and we shall pull.
it round. The ten minutes they worked in silence, inflating and depressing the chest, the unconscious man. At the end of the time, a quiver, shiver ran through his body. His legs trembled. He opened his eyes. The three students burst into an impressible cheer. Wake up, old chap. You're frightened us quite enough. Have you have some brandy? Take a sip from the flask. He's all right now, said the companion, Harrington. Heavens, what a fright. I got, I was reading here, and he got gone for a stroll as far as the river. When I heard a scream and a splash, out of run by the time I could find him and fish him out, all life had gone, all but gone, seemed to have gone. Then Simpson couldn't get a doctor, for he was game leg. I had to run. I didn't know what I had, what I had done. Thank you, fellows. That's right, old chap. Sit up. Malcolm Lee raised himself on his hands, looked wildly about him. What's up? he asked. I've been in the water. Oh, yes, I remember. A look of fear came across his eyes, sank his face into his hands. Where did you fall in? I didn't fall in. How, then? I was thrown in. I was standing on the bank, and somebody picked me up like a feather and held me in. I heard nothing and saw nothing. I know what it was for all, for all that, and so do I, whispered Smith. Lee looked up with a quick glance of surprise. You learned then, he said. You remember the advice I gave you? Yes, I begin to think I, that I should take it. I don't know what the deuce you fellows are talking about, said H.C., but I think if I were you, Hunterdon, I should go Lee a bed at once. It would be time long enough to discuss the why and wherefore when he's a little stronger. I think, Smith, you and I could leave him alone. I am walking back to college. If you're coming in that direction, we'll have a chat. That it was a little chat that they had upon their way homeward path. But his mind was full of the instance of the evening, the absence of the mummy. In his neighbour's room, the step that passed him on the stair, the reappearance, the strongly inexplicable reappearance of the ghastly thing, and in the attack upon Lee, conspiring so closely to previous now, outrage upon another man against whom Bennington bore a grudge, and this settled in his thoughts, together with the many in, little incidents that previously turned him against his neighbour, the singular circumstances under which he first called. In called, called in him what had been a dim suspicion, a vague, fantastic conjecture, had suddenly taken form and stood out in his mind like a grim fact. As a grim fact, thing not to be divine, denied. And yet, how monstrous it was, how unheard, how entirely beyond all bounds of him that his eyes had deceived him. That mummy had been there all the time. The young leader tumbled into the river as, as any man tumbles into the river. A blue pill was the last thing was a for a disordered liver. He thought that he would have much, had said as much if the positions had been reversed. And yet he could swear that Bellingham was a murderer at heart. He wielded a weapon such as no man ever used in all the grim history of crime. Hasty branched out of his room, and a few castmen and fifteen comments upon his friends of severity, and Akakum Smith, Crossed the quadrangle to lower Colonel Turret with a strong court feeling of pulsion for his chambers and their associations. 
He would take Lee's advice and more of his quarters as soon as possible. For how could a man study when his ear was being ever straining for mur- every murmur or footstep in the room below? He observed he crossed over the lawn. A light was shining in Bellingham's window. He passed up the staircase. The window opened. The door opened. And the man himself looked out on him with his fat, evil face, which some bloated spider fresh for the weaving of his poisonous web. Good evening, said he. Won't you come in? No, cried Mr. Fearsley. No, you're busy as ever. I want you to ask you about Lee. I'm sorry to hear that there were a rumour about something that was amiss with him. His features were grave. But there was a gleam of hidden love in his eyes as he spoke. Miss saw it. He could have knocked him down for it. You are sorry still to hear that Monk has leave. He is still very well and out of danger, he answered. Your hellish tricks have not come off this time. Oh, you didn't try to blazon it out. I know it all about it. Bellingham took a step away from his angry student and half crossed the door to protect himself. You're mad, he said. What do you mean? Do you assert that I had anything to lose his accident? Yes, Thundersmith. You are a bag of bones behind you. You want it between you. I tell you that it, what it is, Master B. You've taken up burning folk like you. We still keep a hangman. And by George, if any man in this cottage meets his death while you're here, I will take you up if you do not swing for it. It won't be my fault. You'll find that you do. Find that filthy Egyptian tricks don't work in England. You're a raving lunatic, said Bellingham. All right. Just remember what I say, for you find I'm better than my word. The door slammed, and Smith went fuming to his chamber. We locked the door upon the inside and spent half the night in smoking his old barrier and brooding over the strange events of the evening. Next morning, Akakun Smith heard nothing of his neighbour, but Harrigan called upon him in the evening, afternoon, to say that Lee was almost himself again. All day Smith stuck fast to his work, but in the evening he determined to pay the visit to his friend, Dr. Peterson, upon whom he startled upon the night before. A good week, a friendly chap, would be welcome to his jangled nerves. Bellingham door was shut as he passed, but glancing back, he was some distance from the turret. He saw his neighbour ahead, and the window outlined against the light light. His face pressed apparently against the glass. He glazed out in the darkness. It was a blessing to be away from all contact with him. For uh, a few hours, Smith stepped briskly and breathed the soft spring air into his lungs. The hard moon lay the west. Four or two gothic pinnacles threw upon the silvered street of dark tracery upon the stonework above. There was a brisk breeze and light and fleecy clouds drifted swiftly across the sky. Old was on the very border of the town. In a five minutes, Smith found himself beyond the houses and between the hedges of a May scented Oxfordshire Lane. It was a lonely little frequented road which led to the Plains house. Early as it was, Smith did not mean not met a single soul upon his way. He walked briskly along when he came to the avenue gate, which opened a long gravel drive leading up to Fenton Road. In front of him, he could see the cosy red light of the windows glimmering through the foliage. foliage. He stood with his hand upon the iron latch of the swinging gate. He glanced back at the road along 
which he had come. Something was coming swiftly down it. He moved the shadow of the hedge silently and fervently, a dark, crouching figure, dimly visible against the black background. Even as he gazed upon it, he was lessened his distance by the twenty paces, a fast closing upon him. Out of the darkness he was a glimpse of saggy rock, and the two eyes that have still haunt him in his dreams. He turned with a cry of terror. He ran for his life up the avenue. There were the red lights, the signals of safety, almost within the stone's throw of him. He was a famous phoner, but never had he run as he ran that night. A heavy gate had swung into bases, into place behind him, but he heard a dash upon again before his pursuer. As he rushed madly and wildly through the night, he could hear a swift, dry patter behind him, and could see as he threw back a glance that his horror bounded like a tiger, and his heels and blazing eyes, and one stringing arm outthrown. Thank God the door was ajar. You could see the thin bar of light which shot from the lamp in the hall. Near yet sound, yet sounded the clatter from behind. He heard a horse gurgling at his very shoulder. A shriek he flung open, firming himself against the door. He stared and bolted it behind him, and sank half-fainting into the hell chair. My goodness, Smith, what's the matter? asked Peterson, appearing at the door of his study. Give me some brandy, Peterson disappeared, and came rushing out again. With a glass and decanter, you need it, he said. His visitor drank off what he poured out of him for him. Why, men, are you, why, you're as white as cheese? Smith laid down his glass, rose up and took a breath. I am my own man again, said he. I was never so a man before. But, with your leave, Peterson, I shall sleep here tonight. Oh, I don't think I will face the road again, except for by daylight. It is weak, I know, but I can't help it. Peterson looked at his visitor with a very, with a very questioning eye. Of course you shall sleep, if, if you wish. I tell Mrs. Burnley to make up the spare bed. Where are you off to now? Come with me to the window. That overlooks the door. I want you to see what I have seen. He went up to the window from the upper hall, whence they could look down upon the approach to the house. The drive in the fields on either side lay quiet, and still bathed in the peaceful moonlight. Well, really, Smith, remarked Peterson, it's well that I know that you be an enormous man. What in the world could have frightened you? I tell you presently, but where can they have gone? Oh, look. Now, look, look. See the coat of road just beyond your gate? Yes, I see. You didn't... You didn't pinch my arm off. I saw someone pass. I should say a man, rather thin, apparently. A tall, very tall. But what of him? What of yourself? Are you shaking? Why are you... You're still shaking like an aspen leaf. I've been within the hand grip of the devil. That's all. I come down to your study. I shall feel. Tell you the whole story. He did so, and the cheery lamplight, with a glass of wine on the table beside him, and portly form, and hurried face, his friend in front, he narrated his order of events, great and small, which he formed so singular, a chain, for the night of which he found Bellingham fainting, in front of the mummy case, until his horrid experience, an hour ago. There, now, he said, to be concluded, 
That's a whole black business. It's monstrous and incredible, but it is true. Dada Plumtree Patterson sat for some time in silence, with a very puzzled expression upon his face. I never heard of such a thing in my life, never, at last, he, he said at last. You told me the facts. Now tell me your inferences. You can draw your own, but should like to hear yours. You thought over the matter. I have not. Well, it be very little vague in detail, but the main points seem to me to be clear enough. This fellow Bellingham, in his eastern studies, has got hold of some infernal secret by which a mummy, possibly only this particular mummy, can be temporarily brought to life. He is trying his disgusting business on the night when he fainted. No doubt the sight of the creature moving has shaken his nerve, even though he expected it. You remember that almost the first words he said he were to call upon himself as a fool. Well, he put on afterwards and carried the matter through without fainting. But the tendency which he put upon it was only a passing thing, for it seemed it continually in the case as a dead on his, ta- on his table. He was some elaborate process, I fancy, by which he brings a thing to pass. Having done it, he naturally thought him he might use the creature as an agent. In you know, intelligence and its strength, for which such purposes he took Lee into his confidence, for Lee, like a decent Christian, would have nothing to do with it, such a business. They had a row, and Lee vowed that he would tell his sister Bellingham's true character. But in game was went to pretend him, pretend, prevent him, and he nearly managed it by setting his creature on his very on him on his track. He had already tried his power upon another man, Norton, towards which he had a grudge. It's a merest chance he's not to murder upon his soul. Then, when I taxed him for the matter, he had the strongest reason for wishing me out the way, before I could convey my knowledge to anyone else. He got this chance when I went out for the new my habits, why I was bound for. I am here, I have had now, had a narrow shave, and it's a mere luck you didn't find me on your doorstep in the morning. I'm not so nervous at all. I never thought to have the fear of death upon me as it was tonight. My dear boy, you take the matter too seriously, said his companion. Your nerves are out of order for your work, and you take too much time of it. How could such a thing as this drive through about the streets of Oxford, even at night, without being seen? I it was had been seen. It was quite a scare in the town. That escape eight, as you imagine the gate reached to be, is a talk of the place. Well, it is thinking chain events, and yet, my dear fellow, you mustn't allow that each incident is itself capable of more natural explanation. What even my adventure to tonight? What even of my adventure tonight? Certainly, you must came off with your nerves all strong, strong, your head full of fury of yours, some gaunt half tarnished tramp. Stills are after you, and seeing you run, is avoided to pursue you. Your fears and imagination do the rest. You don't, it won't do, Peterson, it won't do. Again, the incident of your finding the mummy case empty. Then a few moments later, with an occupant, you know that the lamp light, the lamp has half down, that you have no special reason to look hard at the case. It's quite possible that you have been overlooked, the creature, in the first instance. Oh, no, no, it is out of the question. And what Lee may have fallen in the river and Norton being garroted is certainly a form of indication, indictment, that you are against Bellingham. But if you were you know, to place it before, please penetrate. 
He would simply laugh in your face. I know he would. What is why I mean to take the matter into my own hands, eh? Huh? Yes, I feel that the public duty rests upon me. Besides, I must go to try to do it for my own, my own safety. Unless I choose to allow myself to be hunted, the best out of college, that would be a little too feeble. I am quite made up to mind as what should be I should do. Uh, first of all, may I use your paper and pens for an hour? Most certainly. You'll find all that you want upon the side table. Akakun Smith sat down before a sheet of false curl. And then an hour with a second pen hour, his pen trembled swiftly over it. Page over page had finished and tossed aside. His friend leaned back into his armchair, looking across at him with patient curiosity. At last, with an explanation, a satisfaction, Smith sprung to his feet, gathered to his papers, up into his order, up into order, and laid the last one upon Peterson's desk. Can't he sign this as a witness, he said. A witness of what? Of my signature and of the date. The date is most important my Peterson. My date might be hang upon it. My dear Smith, you're talking wildly. Let me beg you go to bed. Let me beg you go to bed. Oh, on the contrary. I've never spoke so deliberately in my life. I promise to go to bed a moment you have signed it. But what is it? It is a statement. All I have been telling you tonight. I wish you to witness it. Certainly, Sir Peterson, signing his name under that of his companion. There you are. What is the idea? You can't retain it. I'm reducing the case. I'm arrested. Arrested what? For the murder is quite on the cards. I wish to be ready for every event. There is only one course upon me. I am determined to take it. For heaven's sakes, don't do anything rash. Believe me, if you be far more rash to adopt any further course, I hope we don't need to bother you. But you see, no ease of mind to know that they know this statement of my, my, my motives. I now am ready to take your advice and go to my roost, for I want to be at my best in the morning. Anvil Combs Smith was not an entirely pleasant man, having as an enemy, slow and easy-tempered. He was formal when shaped to, to, driven to action. He walked to every purpose in life, the same deliberate revolts with softness which had distinguished him as a student, scientific student. He had laid his strays aside for a day, but he intended that they should not be wished. Not a word did he say to his host to, as to his plans. At nine o'clock, he is well on his way to Oxford. In the high street, he stopped at Clifford's the gunmakers and brought a heavy revolver. There were a box of central fire cartridges, six of them. He slipped into the chambers, half cocking a weapon placed in the pocket of his coat. He then made his way to Hazel's Hastie's room, where the big oarsman was lounging over his breakfast in a sporting time propped up against the coffee pot. Hello, what's up? he asked. Want some coffee? No, thank you. I want you to come with me, Hasty, and do what I ask you. Certainly, my boy. And bring a heavy stick with you. Hello, Hasty stated. There's a haunting crop that I felt that would fell. Here's a haunting crop that would fell an ox. One other thing, you might have a box of amethystine knives. Give me the longest of them. There you are. You seem to be fairly on the wall trail. Anything else? Oh, that will do. Smith placed the knife inside his coat and led his way to quadrangle 
We need neither of us chicken, Hasty, said he. I think I can do this job alone, but I take you as a precaution. I'm going to have a little talk with Bellingham. If only him to deal with, I won't, of course, need you. If I shut up, you come. I am out with a whip as hard as you can lick. Do you understand? Oh, wait, I come, I hear you bellow. Stay here, then. It's a little light, I am. But don't bunch until I come down. I am a fixed Smith sconded the stairs upon Bellingham's door and stepped in. Bellingham was seated upon behind his desk, writing. Beside him, along a litter of strange possessions, tailed a mummy case with cell number 249, still struck upon its front, its head is accompanied. Stiff and stark within, Smith looked very deliberately round him, closed the door, locked it, took the key from the inside, then stepping across a fireplace, struck a match and set the fire alight. Berlin sat staring with amazement, a rage upon his bloated face. Well, 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 really now, you're making, make yourself a homely gas. Smith sat himself deliberately down, placing his watch upon the table, drew his pistol, cocked it, and laid it on his lap. Then he took his long, lamentating knife from his bosom and threw it down in front of Bellingham. Now then, said he, get to work and cut up that mummy. Ah, is that it, said Bellingham, with a sneer. Yes, that is it. They tell me that the law can't touch you, but I have a law that will that set matters. Straight, if in five minutes you do not set to work, I swear to my God, you made, you made me. I will put the bullet through your brain. You would ne- you would murder me? Bellingham had half risen, and his face was colour of putty. Yes, and for what? To stop your mischief. One minute was gone. Was gone. And what have I done? I know, and you know. This there is this is mere bullying. Two minutes are gone. For what? We, good, what? But you must give reasons. You are a madman, a dangerous madman. Who should I destroy? Destroy my own property. It is a valuable mummy. Then you must cut it up, and you must burn it. I will do no such thing. Five minutes are gone. Red took up the pistol. He looked towards Bellingham with his horrible face. As a second hand strolled round, he raised his hand, and a finger twitched upon the trigger. There, there, I'll do it, screamed Bellingham. A frantic haste, he caught up the wave and hacked at the figure of the mummy. Ever glancing round to see the eye, the weapon his terrible visitor bent upon him. The creature crackled and snapped under every stab of the keen blade. A thick yellow dust rose up from it. Spices and dried essences rained down upon the floor. Suddenly, with a rending crack, backbone snapped asunder and fell upon the brown heap of sprouting limbs upon the floor. Now into the fire, says Smith. The flames leaped and roared as the dried and timber-like prairies were poured upon it. A little room was like the strode hall of steamer. The sweat ran down the faces of the two men. But still the one stooped and worked, while the other one sat watching with a straight face. A thick, fat smoke oozed from the fire. A heavy smell of burned resin and singed hair filled the air. In a quarter of an hour, a fair chewed and brittle sticks were all that left a lot. Two, four, nine. Perhaps it would satisfy you, snarled Bellingham, with hate and fear. His little grey eyes, his guards back, as his tormentor. No, I must take a, make a clean sweep. 
of all your materials. We must make no more double tricks. We must have no more devil tricks, in which all the leaves. You may have something to do with it. And now what? said asked Bellingham, when he leaves also, having added to the blaze. Now the bowl of propagus, which you had on the table that night. Is it in, is it in that drawer, I think? No, no, shouted Bellingham. Don't burn that. Why, man, you don't know what you do. It's unique. It contains wisdom, which is nowhere else to be found. Out of it! But look, here, Smith, you can't really mean it. I share the knowledge with you. I'll teach you what it is. I stay. Let me copy it before you burn it. Smith stepped towards and turned the key of the drawer. Taking out the yellow, cold roll of paper, he threw it into the fire and pressed it down upon his heel. Burning and screamed and grabbed at it. But Smith put him back and stood over until he was juiced into a formless grey ash. Now, Pastor B, Master B, he said, I think you've pretty well drawn your teeth. You hear him from me again. You return to your old tricks. Now, good morning, for I must go back to my studies. As much as the narrative of Africa Smith to the single events which occurred in the old cottage. In the spring of 84, as Bellingham left the college immediately, the university immediately afterwards, was last heard in the soul land, when there is no one who can contradict his, state, contradict his statement. But the wisdom of man is small, and the ways of nature are strange. Who might put the bound to dark things which may be found by those who seek for them?